You know, if you take a look back over the past several months, things have been absolutely insane. We have talked about this COVID-19 coronavirus that's been going around, forcing everybody to wear a mask wherever you go in public. The presidential governor, Judge Clay Jenkins, orders that have kind of mixed up life. I don't know if you missed it, but we actually had a dust storm from the Sahara Desert that hit North Texas. And we're not the only ones going through this. There was something kind of even more remarkable than all the random protests that came out. And I wouldn't say random because there was a, a cause or an injustice behind it. But there was something different that happened called Chaz or Chop. How many of y'all have heard about this? So on June 8th, there was this big breakout of protests in Seattle. And people literally occupied a main section of Seattle. They overtook one of the police districts. This place was left undone because the mayor of Seattle said, we're just going to allow them to peacefully protest. The problem with the peaceful protest is there were actually two black teenage boys who were mur murdered, one 19, one 16, and there's still a 14-year-old black uh, African-American who's fighting for his life. There was rape drugs, robbery, all these kind of injustice, and then the, the mob turned on the mayor and actually vandalized her home, and shortly thereafter, she made an order for the police to go in and clean house. And clean house they did with the help of the FBI, and within a few hours, Chaz or Chop was no more. They had reestablished order within Seattle, and they were starting to clean things up and pick up the pieces and if you see pictures of Seattle now, it's not exactly the way it used to be, but at least this chop is no more. Whenever we think about this, a lot of times these autonomous zones or chaos in certain places has a tendency to break out. The book of Titus was written by Paul to Titus as he was trying to reestablish order in the churches in Crete, in Crete, Paul had left Titus, a trusted follower of Jesus Christ, and basically said, what I need you to do is set in order the chaos that is infiltrating the church. And that's where we're going to pick up today. If you'll read along with me, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and this is where the text starts. And it says, this is why I left you in Crete. So Paul addresses Titus, he says, this is it. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Saying to Titus, look, I want you to establish order and I have given you a verbal list of all the things that you're supposed to do. All the churches where this is to take place. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, talking about the elders, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and do not... and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul is telling Titus that in order for the church 
to function properly, there is a structure that must be taking place. In order to have order, you must create a certain structure. He says, this is why you're here. You want to know your purpose? Your purpose is to set structure to this chaos, to bring order to the storm. And this is what we can take away very quickly from this. Churches to have order. Churches to have structure. There are certain things that are supposed to be so that a church can operate properly. There is a reason that businesses and companies have leadership. The leadership set the order. They put systems in place to make companies successful. And with church, it's the same kind of thought because the big problem was the church was broken and they needed a reset. I want to tell you a little bit of what happened to me last weekend. We had the opportunity to go to the lake 4th of July weekend. It's a great way to spend uh, uh, 4th of July. Anybody ever spent 4th of July on the lake? So we're on the lake and we're doing our thing and Christy hops on the tube with the rest of us, right? We go real slow with Carly, get Carly off. I'd had enough of the tube. I'm on the boat. And then all of a sudden, they decide to do one more run before we go in for dinner. Just one. One more run before we go eat. And all the girls hop on the tube, not Carly. All the girls get on the tube and they're like, we want to go crazy. As they get on the tube, Christy's one of the passengers. As she's going around on the tube, they kind of go crazy, and then they slow down, right? We're just going to go a little bit more as we're headed back to the dock to park the boat. Is that what you say, park the boat? I don't know. Park the boat. And as we're doing this, they hit a wake, going slow, not fast, going safe, mind you, too safe, and they hit the wake in just the right way, and Christy's nose collides with one of our friend's legs. Christy's face was smashed. Her nose broken not in one, two, or three places, but four places. We go to the ER, and they try to fix it and all that. And what I was going to do was show you a picture of it or the x-rays of it, but I like my marriage, so I want you to understand this in a different way. When a bone is broken, and this is, this is the terminology that we see, whenever a bone is broken, the doctor, if it's a nose, has to set the nose and that bone back in place. When an arm is broken, they, they take the severed part and they fix it and then they wrap it and secure it so that the bone can heal properly. When Paul is talking to Titus, he is saying, what I want you to do is take the brokenness and set it in order. In the same way that a doctor will set a broken bone, it's the same terminology, the same thought, Paul is telling Titus, you got to take that church and set it in order because it's broken. Now, the reason they were broken is several different factors that creep into the church. First of all, they didn't have proper leadership structure. It'd be kind of like somebody showing up and saying, hey, you know what, I want to be pastor today. And everybody's like, okay, why not? Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all the decisions today for the church because I know how to do business. Oh, uh, well, that makes sense, even though a church and a business aren't exactly the same thing. Well, you know what? I feel like it's my prerogative to lead. It's my right to lead, so today I'm going to lead. And so there was no leadership structure in the church, and so Paul tried to establish order by having leadership. Another problem in the church. They had false doctrine being taught. This is throughout the book of Titus. And it was not uncommon in churches during the time that Paul was alive. And unfortunately, it's still not uncommon today to have false teachings taking place. 
And then the third thing that you see in verse 9, the third reason that they were having all these problems and what they had to do to reestablish order to set the broken bones is he says, you must get back to the Word of God, verse 9. And what we see is Paul is establishing structure in the church because structures create order. In order to set the bone, they had to have proper leadership, holy and righteous leadership. In, in order to set the brokenness of the church, they had to eradicate and get rid of and rebuke false teaching. In order to eradicate the problems in the church, they had to get back to the Word of God. It says, so what I want you to do is appoint elders. Now, there's not explicit instructions in how this takes place, but we see it in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, Paul gathers the church together. The early church gathers everyone together, and as they do, they said, appoint from yourself men who are holy and righteous and blameless, men who fear God. And you see that establishment taking place in Acts chapter 6. Choose from among yourself those who have a good reputation. Those who are known for fearing God and walking into his orders. And that's why we as a church have a certain organization where it comes from. If you don't know our structure and our leadership dynamic in our church, the way that we have people that come in and create accountability to make sure there's proper leadership structure is we have the church come together to establish those who will be in positions of leadership. Whenever I came here about five and a half years ago, the church examined me. I don't know if y'all remember, how many of y'all were here five and a half years. How many of y'all remember the 12 different meetings I had to go to whenever I first came here? I thought, man, these people are thorough. And I remember going through all these different things. Everybody got to ask my questions. Everybody saw my resume. Everybody got to hear my sermons. Everybody got to know me as much as possible. And then the church voted on me. The congregation came together and chose their pastor. Not only do we, we operate in, in that function, we have staff members. We have staff members who come together, myself with the personnel team, and the way it works whenever we're hiring a new staff person is I get the first vote, and I'll bring one candidate to the personnel team at a time. And I'll say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to examine this individual. And the personnel team will interview and ask questions and go through that whole process. And as they come up, whenever the personnel team feels good about something, then it comes before the church. Same thing happens with our deacon body. Different role, different functions. Our deacons deek. If you don't know what deacons mean, it means to serve. Our deacons are the servant of the church. You ever wonder why the AC is on when you get here? You ever wonder why the lights are on? You ever wonder why the doors are unlocked? You ever wonder why, like when you're in the hospital or you're not feeling good, someone calls you to check on you that's a deacon? It's because our deacons serve the body. Amen? And as they serve, they do an excellent job. They are appointed in the same way in Acts chapter 6 here as it happened in the New Testament by the congregation. And it goes to ministry teams. Our ministry teams function in a role to make sure ministry happens. We have a finance team. Every month they gather together and they look over the finances. They look at all the expenses, all the receipts, where we are with our budget, where we are with our spending. Ministry teams established by the church. Personnel team. Building and grounds ministry teams. And this is our function, appointed by the church in the same way it happened in Acts chapter 6. Pastor led, staff directed, deacon served, ministry team performed, congregation approved, working together to make sure we have order. But verse 6 gives us clarity to the order. It says, if anyone is above reproach, we want to appoint people 
to look over the church, appoint people, make sure the church is functioning properly. It says, if anyone is above reproach, these are the people you appoint. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. These are those that you are to lift up. And verse 6 is really unique in what it does because it gives us a characteristic of the man of God that God wants to use to be a leader and a servant of the church. He makes it very clear and very evident that the man of God must be a family man. If a man of God does not have his house in order, how on earth can we expect him to have the church in order? If a deacon can't take care of his own home and his own family, how on earth is he going to take care of the homes and families of those entrusted to him? If a staff member neglects his wife or children, what on earth do we think they're going to do with their church family? There's a direct correlation here. And I love that our church understands that in order for a pastor or minister to do their job properly and to take care of business within the church, they've got to take care of stuff at home first. What's true in the church is also true in business. What's true in business is also true in, in church work. If you have a dad that neglects their family for their job, do you know what the children are going to do? They're going to resent their parents' job. It's a little bit different whenever you're talking about the pastor because I think the stakes are higher. If I put my job in front of my children, do you know what's going to happen all the time? My children will not only hate my job, they're going to hate the church. And not only are they going to hate the church, they're going to resent God. If they resent God, they're going to be children that are defined by disobedience. Children who are defined by debauchery. Because if they're not following after God, what are they going to do? They're going to move in the opposite direction of him. It's just such an important thing for all of us to understand that the man of God, that the children of God, we are all responsible to point our children to Jesus, not away from them. I want to say something here as well. Just because God has called the man of God to be a family man does not mean he needs to use his family as a crutch not to work hard and do his job. I have seen so many pastors use their family as an excuse not to do office hours, not to make phone calls, not to make visits, not to do any of those things. There is a possibility and a way to do both of it, but I'm just going to be really honest with you. Most of the time, my job demands the life of an empty nester, and I have four children at home, and it's just very hard. Do you want to know why our staff goes and we share the responsibility of making hospital visits? I can't do it on my own. Do you want to know something even better than this? Acts chapter 6 tells us that the deacons were appointed to serve the church, to, vido, to visit widows and orphans and to take care of the daily needs so that the men of God would not neglect the teaching, studying, and praying. And because of that, our church functions in a biblical way where the deacons serve and the pastors are able to minister the word and pray. And together, it's funny how great ministry can happen. I look, and I've got deacons scattered all over the room. And I know I'm going to miss some, but I'm just going to say this. Because Richard Crank is a good deacon who takes care of his families, my job is a whole lot easier. Because Lloyd Charles is a good deacon who calls and ministers to his family, my job is a whole lot easier. Because Ronnie calls and checks and visits on his family, my job as, as a pastor is a whole lot easier. And you want to know something else? Because they do what a deacon is supposed to do, lead, leading by serving instead of trying to dictate and govern the church, 
our church is a whole lot healthier. Verses 7 and 8 not only talk about structure, but it gives us the standard that we're to be set. It says this, for an overseer, talking about the role of a pastor, right? For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And what happens here is there's this big umbrella that everything else we're about to read falls into, above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. What we see for the man of God, for anyone who's going to serve in the church, is that it's not a right, but there is a standard to be met, and that standard is that they are to be above reproach. Now, just asking, does that mean the man of God has to be perfect? I heard a couple no's, and some of y'all are like, I hope not, because you're without a job, if so. There is a standard in which we are to live, but it's not a lifestyle. Are we all going to sin and fall short of the glory of God at times? Of course we are, but it's not habitual in a lifestyle. One of my pastor friends, I was struggling with something. My mentor and, and my ministry coach would just tell me, he said, Cole, you cannot hold a standard of yourself. Whenever it comes to your kids, whenever it comes to your parenting, whatever comes to where God would be disqualified if his children did what you did. I was like, I don't understand. And he said, here's the deal. God is the only one who is perfect. And as long as you're following after him, whenever you stumble, you confess your sins, you work towards it, and you move in those ways, as long as you don't disqualify yourself, God will use you, which requires humility, which requires accountability, which requires this idea to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But what you see is above reproach is the umbrella by which the man of God, the woman of God, the leaders of the church are to carry and conduct themselves. And what falls underneath the idea of being above reproach is a list of don'ts and a list of do's. And I just want you to, to look at this list as we kind of work through it. It says, the list of don'ts, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not drunk, not violent, not greedy, not money-hungry, all these characteristics that the man of God should not be. In. And whenever you think about it, if there's a man who's arrogant, he's never going to look around and say, I could possibly be wrong. And if you got a person who thinks they're the sole authority on everything in life, all you have is constant problems with them. God can't use somebody who's not willing to lean on him because all good things come from God and through God and we must dwell in him, not of ourselves. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered. We don't need a hothead in the pulpit. We don't need a hothead in the deacon body. We don't need a hothead on a ministry team. We need people who can be sound and rational, not a drunk. I mean, that's pretty self-evident, right? Controlled by the Holy Spirit, not by alcohol, not violent. We don't want somebody who every time they see somebody who disagrees with them, they go up and punch somebody in the nose. Ed, you know what I'm talking about. Not greedy, not money hungry. Like, I'm not here to get rich. Pastors, men of God, women of God should not be there to get rich. And then it says, here's what you must be. Hospitable. Welcome people in. And think about why this is so important. If people come into our church and we're not welcoming, if we're not warm, if we're not friendly, what do they think about the church? What do they think about God? If you can't practice that in your own personal life, how on earth can you practice it in the church? And if we don't welcome people in and receive them as they are, how on earth do we expect them to want to hear the good news? A lover of good, to seek to do good, to celebrate good, self-controlled, upright, holy. Jesus says, be holy as I am holy and disciplined. 
You want me to, to make this real easy for you? In order to lead the church, not only must you have received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you must walk with God as your personal Lord and Savior. You must have a daily relationship with God. You must grow in your personal relationship with Him. You must be intertwined with God. And whenever you do all these things, then you can live out Christ and you find yourself above reproach, not because of you, but because of He who lives inside of you. So the standard for us, all of us, not just the man of God, not just the woman of God, the standard for all of us is to do everything we can to kill the flesh that lives within us and to live in the Spirit, to put to death our sins and to live in the Spirit of God which should control us and manage and guide and direct our lives. When you see this, what it says to us is that the man of God must be a man of character. And I want you to, to, to understand something because I don't want you to feel like this is something just about the preachers or the ministry team members or the ministers or the, the deacons or those people. This is the standard by which every follower of Jesus Christ should ascribe to. This is for you and for me, not just for us and they get to do whatever they want. I love verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that in order to walk in this manner, in order to have order, we must set the source. Listen to this. You might want to circle it. You might want to highlight it. I love it. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must hold firm. This is a clear indication that whenever we're talking about hold firm to the word that is taught, hold firm to God's word. The Bible. God's word is our guide. The Bible is the instruction manual that God has given us to live our lives in accordance with him. Whenever we talk about holding firm to the word of God, we need to understand that it is by the word we will live and breathe. God didn't give us a separate manual for how to do life. He didn't give us a separate manual for how to do church. He didn't give us a separate manual for how to be a good husband or wife or how to be a good child or parent. God gave us his word, and we must hold firm to it. We must live in and according to the word. And as we do this, we see that Paul is giving Titus and the church, in Creed and the church today, three simple things that we must do to live in the word. The very first thing that we see is that we must hold firm to the word. Hold firm. Be convicted by the word. What the church needs today, I'm not just talking about First Baptist Rally, I'm talking about every church is they need men of God who will hold firm to the Word of God, who will say this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. We will preach it from cover to cover. We will not leave things out that are uncomfortable. We will preach with conviction because God gave it to us, and this is how we live a life that is pleasing to Him. We don't need to sugarcoat the message. We don't need to tiptoe around certain issues. In order for the man of God, in order for the church to proper functionally, the word of God must be taught. 
and explained with practical application. You want to know why you're never going to see us do a sermon series on living your best life now? You want to know why you're not going to see like some contemporary Christian living book that we're going to surround a year around? You want to understand why we're not going to pick up a book and preach through a book that was written by man, why we will only use the Word of God? for our sermons and our classes and connect groups and on our Wednesday night Bibles. Do you want to know why? Because this is the only book with absolute soul authority. And what the church needs to understand is if we don't hold firm to this, we will be tossed to and fro wherever the wind may lead, which is why we have the second thing that we are to instruct from the Word of God. I love this idea that whenever we talk about instructing from the Word of God that we make it applicable to our daily lives, to where we teach it, to where we can understand it. I got the best compliment I think I've ever gotten in my 20-whatever years of pastoring. Somebody sent me a text, and he said, Cole, I don't want to get into exegesis and eisegesis. I just want you to, to know. You explained the text in a way that made it so easy for me to understand your application was something that I still remember, and I just want to thank you for the sermon you preached. And I was like, I want to post it. Like, I want everyone to see this. But the Bible tells me I can't be arrogant about it. And if I post a brag, then all of a sudden I'm going to be arrogant, and people are going to be like, man, that coal is too cocky, too arrogant, too proud. But I can tell you this, whenever we're talking about instructing from the Word, our church needs to be a church that takes the Word of God, opens it up, dissects it, and communicates it to where everybody can understand. We must instruct from the Word. This is why in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy this. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach, everybody read it with me, preach the Word. It doesn't say preach self-help. It doesn't say preach what the culture wants to hear. It doesn't say preach what's culturally relevant or politically correct. It says preach the word. Preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching, which goes into the final part of verse 9, which means we are to modify from the Word. Like this is the thought we should have as followers of Jesus Christ. When we get to a point in our life to where we confess our sins and we say, God, I know you're holy and righteous and I am dead in my sins and my trespasses, but I'm calling out to you as my Savior to save me from my sins. I make you my Lord and Savior. At that point, what happens is Jesus regenerates our heart and moves us from death into life or into a relationship with Him. At that point, our lives should change. They should be transformed. And the transformation for the believer happens through being modified by the Word of God, being transformed by the Word of God, by the proclamation. And there are times in a church where quite honestly, I have to go to people and say, hey, here's what you need to understand. What you said is wrong. What you did to that person is wrong. Like, 
I don't think we should have to tell people in the church you shouldn't gossip, right? Like, shouldn't we know better? But you know what happens? People gossip. People still get on their phone, and they're going to be like, you're not going to believe what Cole did or what Cole didn't do. You're not going to believe what this person in the church said or didn't say. You're not going to believe what Hunter or Julie did. They run their mouth and they create division and they act on behalf of Satan instead of God. And it just creates disruption within the church. It should be obvious. But we are to reprove and rebuke with patience and instruction. Like, I don't really think that we need to look around and say, hey, you shouldn't be hateful to people. Like, I think we know that it's not okay to steal I feel like we know that it's not right to have a foul mouth or to be disruptive or not to tithe and not to trust God with our, like I think all of these, not to be disobedient to parents, but we are born into sin with a sin nature in a sin fallen world and there are times to where quite honestly David Kerr has to come to me and say, Cole, I feel like you might be off a little bit. Like you're not as patient. And loving as you always are. You must have had a bad night's sleep or something. Like there are times where James might, might have to come and speak to me and say, Cole, I don't understand your behavior here or your, your thought process. But there are good ways that we can act within the body of Christ and there are harmful ways that we act within the body of Christ. And what God wants through his servants is for the church to create order and to set it in place. And I want us all in the church to understand this. When there is disorder or disunity, when there is conflict or tension within the church, when we don't preach the word of God, a lost and dying world looks at what happens within the church and they think if a ch- we may not understand in a complaint or a gripe or a gossip or a hateful comment, That the world is lost and it impacts eternity. But understand this, a world is watching. And what we do as a church impacts eternity. In the same way that there's very few people in the world that want to move to Seattle, there's very few people who want to go to a church that is broken and hate. Which means that we, as men and women of God, must be devoted. We must be disciplined. We must have a deep conviction when it comes to the Word of God. We must have this mentality that I as a member of the church that I as a follower of Jesus Christ that I as one who identifies with Christ will be devoted and disciplined I will hold firm to the word of God I will live God's way because that is the only way I am going to survive in these crazy days